One of our own, the Reverend Father Timothy Phelps, presented the 2019 EFAC USA Conference. That's short for the Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion. He presented on the topic of bivocational ministry and sermon preparation. We want to say a special word of thanks to EFAC USA and the Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama for allowing us to share this work with you. This is a Viewpoints episode of Living Through the Word. On occasion, we will present different positions and ministry philosophies that operate within the boundaries of our formularies. The positions presented in these episodes are those of the speakers and not necessarily held by the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. So, we met. Nice to see you. There was, a, there was about a hundred other clergy that wanted to come to this bivocational thing, but they're all working today. You know, that's the reality of being a bivocational minister. And right. so, uh, today I'm going to just be talking about my realities and how I've come to learn to do things like sermon prep and how to function in the many, 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 many hats uh, that I have. So, I am a bivocational minister. I, when I say bivocational, that can mean a bunch of different things to different people. And when I say bivocational, I mean I earn my living entirely out of the church. I am, I am a volunteer priest. So I work 40 hours in the software industry as a full-time job during the week. And it's survive. I mean, there's a lot of perks there. I don't have to worry about providing for my family. Uh, the job, day job, takes care of me. Um, as you heard earlier, I have five kids with one on the way in December. So I am a busy fellow, the oldest is 10, and that means I go to my day job to relax, really, because that, that is just my life. And so my church is 20 to 25 people or so on a good week, if I'm on a really good week, sometimes it's just me and my family, you know, that's just it, and I'm the sole clergyman, and I have to do it. And so I am, you know, I have very helpful lay people. I have, um, I still have all the responsibility of putting together a Sunday service, which includes the bulletin, it includes the music, I, it includes preaching 50 times a year, and some small groups sometimes, although that's kind of tapered off. It includes some, obviously, pastoral care as needs arise. It includes some outreach, uh, you know, but that also has tapered off in recent, because uh, I have had to do some, do less for the church and for reasons uh, related to my day job. A chunk of my vacation time is given to the church every year. Uh, I hear people at Synod, for example, whining about how this is tough and they're looking forward to taking some time off on Monday. And I'm like, well, I'm using my time off right now to be here and I am going to work on Monday. So, you know. They just, they, they, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. And that's one of the things I'm trying to draw some uh, attention to by talking about this thing, or th- this reality. I, when people ask me, how do you do it? The answer is not very well. It means a lot, not just one or two people are mad at me at any given time. I'm not, I'm, I can't do it all. One of the prayers that I offer with some regularity is, Lord, remember that I'm just a man. How, how am I going to do all of this? So, you know, I worked yesterday. I'm working tomorrow. No, I'm not, not, not tomorrow. I'm working Friday because I work, I can have some flexibility with uh, remote options and that, that does save my butt. 
So, you know, I mentioned like I'm not doing as much outreach as I used to. I got some difficulties into some difficulties in my day job last year that eventually worked out. But uh, I got I had a reputation in my day job that said Timothy doesn't go the extra mile. Well, that's really not that unfair. I have five kids and a day job uh, and a church. So going the extra mile doesn't really work. I mean, saying you don't go the extra mile, earning that reputation really doesn't work uh, outside. I mean, in corporate America. So you do have to figure out how you're going to do that. And I'm not sure I've figured it out yet. So I'm not trying to whine about um, how or, you know, my life is or what have you. This isn't the woe is Tim saga. Uh, but uh, just to give you some background, because it's really been critical to establishing my philosophy in, of ordained ministries, established my street creds, you know, if you will. I, if you'd have asked me about this five or six years ago, if I would still be doing this, because I've been planting this church for five years and I've been doing this bivocational life thing for six, I would have told you you were completely nuts. I mean, that because my life is crazy. I mean, my life is like, it, I, I, I make a joke, you know, it's, it's, it's like playing whack-a-mole all the time. You're just trying to all, constantly jumping back and back and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And so, and, and if you asked me this even a few years ago, like when I was in seminary or something, I would have told you that this kind of life would even maybe even be sinful, that God would never put his servants into such circumstances, never called someone to live this kind of life. And I think I was naive in hindsight, but I, I have to say that that's not an uncommon view. There's a book on the table out in the hall there about avoiding burnout. And one of the things it talks about is, you know, guarding your day off. Okay, well, those books don't help me at all. They really don't. They, they're actually more heaping of stuff on my back than they are helpful. And that's an experience, unfortunately, uh, I've, I've grown rather used to. There aren't books written, not very many, for my circumstances. It's not a life I recommend, by the way. If you don't have this calling, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want it. Uh, but there are some perks, but I think there's some definite downers and discouragement that comes along with it. But I do think it's important to raise awareness for this because what I'm describing, I think, is going to be actually more common and more normal in our culture as our culture starts to turn away from Christ. Because... People are going to stop giving less. There's going to be less money in the coffers. There's more and more lawsuits in our own tradition, and that's where the money's going. And, and you know, what happens when churches start losing nonprofit status in 20, 30 years? Not a whole lot of clergy are going to be employed in those churches and, and, and many other things. And I hope that maybe I'm going to, one of the reasons I'm recording this today is that I, I, I'm going to give this to my diocesan bishop after this. I'm not 100% convinced that leadership and churches in general, my bishop, he's, he's pretty good in pastoral care, and, and, I, and I really appreciate that, but and on a general scale, so I'm not necessarily talking about him, I, I don't, we've not interacted for that long, um, but on a general scale, I think diocesan and provincial leadership is kind of clueless to the reality of what's going on in corporate America and having what happens to clergy when they work in both worlds, clergy, and the clergy world and the secular world and how it works together and the struggles that we all have. And so I call this ministry in exile for reasons that I hope will become apparent in just a few minutes. 
So to quickly just go through my own little, uh, my own background here and how I got to my current ministry paradigm. From 2003 to 2006, I went to RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, a non-denominational school, but everybody knows it's Presbyterian. So, you know, that's how it is. And because of the Presbyterian influence, there were uh, many in the staff were what are Sabbatarians, very strict Sunday Puritan Sabbath observance. And so to give you an idea, we did not have class at seminary until 2.30 on Mondays, lest you be tempted to study on the Lord's Day. So that, that's the, and, and they had a big influence on me. And I, I, so I already believed the importance of resting one day in seven and believed this was part of the created ordinance. And it's very helpful to remind me that I'm not God. Although I get a lot of reminders today that I'm not God. And most of them would likely argue though that there's some there's some there's kind of loopholes here because clearly the sabbath day or the 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 day sunday as the lord day is not a day of rest for the pastor and so the pastor would have to take enough another day and i took a lot of this stuff with me when i went into ministry i got ordained and i'm not going to go into specifics but my first year as a deacon i was in a pretty tough ministry and i was regularly working 10 to 15 hours a week in the in the cathedral church and so it was, it was just very, very hard. And I would, how well do you think I did on my day job on Mondays? Not super. And there were times that I'd have to submit a bill for my labor on Mondays. And I'm like, Lord, this is just not fair. Because, I mean, how am I supposed to submit a bill to a customer when I looked out the window all morning because I couldn't do anything? And, it's, and I was just, I was wrestling with that because, again, I'm just a man many days I was just not functional. But in my prayer life, I was crying out to God. My church circumstances were tricky. I couldn't really do anything about them without some serious ecclesiastical risk. And my work situation was the same. You can't go to your daytime employer and say, look, I have these church responsibilities. That's why I'm such a flake at work sometimes. You can't say that. Or you're, you know, you're going to be getting a pink slip by the end of the day. You're done. You're done. So, Here's another example, although not quite what Jesus intended when he says you can't serve two masters. It doesn't, I had two masters and they were mutually opposed at times. So I was so tired and there are days I'm still so tired, but luckily it's a lot better today. Uh, but worse, my conscience was really weighing on me because I didn't, I really wanted to give my employer a better me, but I didn't have it. And I only had three kids at the time, and they, but I didn't feel like I was giving them their due, but I couldn't do anything about it except put on my best face. You know, I'll try harder. Yeah, I'm going to really, like, that's going to help. Like, that's going to help. And was I sinning in all this? I don't even know. I really don't. I hope I wasn't. But I, I prayed a lot. I prayed, and, and God was really faithful to me in ways I was not necessarily expecting. That book I mentioned earlier, that was one, you could put that on the stack of many books that didn't help me. Like the ones that said, give glory to God by working your hardest at work. I'm like, this does not, this does not work for my circumstances at all. It doesn't. Basically, surviving in all of your many responsibilities was, was my life. But God did teach me, and he was faithful to me, and he taught me a few things. First, he taught me how to, I mean, he taught me by bringing me Dietrich Bonhoeffer back into my life, because I'd read him some, and he has really since become one of my heroes of the faith, and I rediscovered him. He didn't have any Christian resources either that, were t was, that told him that he needed to lie to the Germans every day while still doing Christian ministry. Yep. That, those are not Christian books you could get back then. And 
my life was not that bad. That was not that bad. I wasn't outright lying, just not volunteering everything to my employers when they were asking why I was flaky, you know, that or, you know, hinting like that. And you can't, and, and especially as the culture, I work in tech, uh, not, not the Episcopal Church tech, but technology. And you don't, te- technology in general is pretty hostile to Christianity. And so you don't tell your hostile employer how hard ministry is, or that's the end. And so you, you, have, to, you have to figure out what you can and cannot say to your employer. I have been in situations in my day job where I have worked with people who would ruin me if they knew I was a priest. So I can't even tell them that. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a tricky place. But also about the same time, what the Lord spoke to me in was through Deuteronomy 5 and the Ten Commandments version, specifically in the Deuteronomy passage, uh, when, the, and the verse that, part of the verse I'm spe- specifically remembering and talking about observing the Sabbath day is, you shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out thence with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And when I started, what started to just kind of sink deeply into my soul was that one of the points of the Sabbath day was to remind them that they weren't free. I mean, that they were a free people now, so you could have a day off. A free people could get a day off, as an enslaved people never got a day off. That was a major, that was a major enlightening point to me. And when the people went, God went back in exile, did they get days off when they were in Babylon? I don't think so. I don't, I don't see anything in the scriptures that might point that, but generally people who are enslaved don't get days off unless they're, you know, so just abused that they can't move. But that's for other, obviously not something we want to encourage. So when I started to grasp that exile and enslavement part of the, the, how Sabbath keeping works, a lot of other things in my life started to make sense. All of the seminary training that I got, all of the books that I had been reading were effectively preparing me for ministry in Jerusalem. And I lived in Babylon. And the ministry that I had was not like a ministry in Jerusalem. It worked in, and I had to figure out what it looked like in Babylon, and I had to figure it out quick. The rules of engagement for an exile were very, very different. And so what you're hearing today is essentially me trying to figure out what does exile ministry look like. When I heard things like you should plan on Sunday to spend, uh, to prepare for a Sunday sermon approximately one hour for every minute you plan to preach. Well, I preached 27 minutes on Sunday. So that's 27 hours you do the math. That's that's not looking very good for me. It doesn't work. It doesn't work out at all. Uh, and I, I generally get about four, four hours. And that, that means I have to use every bit of it uh, to the best I can. And that means also, exile ministry means that my church has to come after my job. And my job has to come after my family. So it's low. And it, because I told you earlier about my employment situation I ran in earlier, it's actually lower than it has been. And... I have to still, yes, I have a responsibility for the church, but if I don't have a day job, I don't have a church because I'm a volunteer. I'm a volunteer and I have to earn a living. So what I've learned, though, when I read the scriptures, I think of Ezekiel. I think one of the reasons Ezekiel was called was because he was trying to be a faithful priest in Babylon, and he didn't know how to do it. And God, his ministry, 
His calling that God gave him was essentially working out a priest's calling in Babylon. It didn't look anything like a priesthood calling in Jerusalem. He's in, he's in exile. He still has a, a care responsibility for the people of God, and he's just working it out. So if the church loses all nonprofit status and all our seminaries, seminaries lose nonprofit status, I'm ordained. And it doesn't matter. I believe, and I believe in the historic tradition of ontological ordination so that I'm always a priest. And if I lose my job, I'm still a priest. And I still have a responsibility to the flock of God. And I'm still going to give an account for it on the last day. But I have to figure out, it doesn't mean I'm off the hook. It means I just have to figure out what the new rules of engagement are. One's circumstances, one's gifting, one's anointing doesn't jack of, I've learned, does not justify lack of preparation. I was, you'll, you'll love this story. So one time I was in an African setting and we were going to process in. I wasn't even ordained yet. I was in the ordination process. And the bishop comes to the, from the back of the line, comes up to the front because I'm not even ordained yet. He says, you're preaching. And he goes to the back and, and, and we process. And that's much more acceptable in, uh, African circumstances than here, but and I'm not a big fan. If you can tell, I don't. I think preparation is really important, and I, you, I would much rather have the prepared surgeon than the anointed surgeon. And you probably would too. And I, I think the parallel for preaching is is very very similar. I have sworn as an ordained presbyter that I will uphold the word of God and that I will teach it as well as I can, and I will feed the hungry souls under my watch. Now, because of my circumstances, they might be getting beans and rice when I feed them. They're not getting a Michelin star restaurant feeding like you might get on the radio. And sometimes they get beans and rice, but they're fed. And I, and I feed them the best as I can. And I'm really thankful for our liturgy and all the scriptures. And with some regularity, I expand the readings on Sundays to make sure that if something happens and I totally blow the sermon, thankfully it doesn't happen that often, but all preachers are going to blow it once in a while, uh, that they're still fed by everything else that's in the service. So I'm very thankful <laughs> for that. So with our remaining time, maybe you can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say I'll take your questions at the end, but then I'm going to talk through how I do sermon prep in any given week. Uh, and then maybe you can know somebody who needs to hear this. Because like I said, probably my wife pointed this out to me. She's like, Tim, everybody who wants to hear this and needs to hear this is going to be working <laughs> while, you're pre while you're doing this. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Um, so let's imagine I have four weeks, four days. Oh, no, not four days. Four hours in about four to six hours on any given week to do sermon prep. It's Monday. I need to preach in six days. What do I do? I preach about 50 times a year. Holy Week is a whole different animal. And I'm so tired after Holy Week, but I don't. I mean, usually Tuesday or Wednesday after Holy Week, I go back to work. So I normally preach about 30 minutes, plus or minus five. Um... And if this is all, by the way, assuming that I take my own advice, sometimes I don't. And that's another issue that just says more about the state of my soul than anything else. So Monday morning, I have a lectionary. I stick to my lectionary almost all the time. I read through all the four texts appointed. We have an Old Testament, a Psalm, a Gospel, and an Epistle. They are, and I try to read them devotionally on Monday. And like I'm, the exceptions I'll make for Sanctity of Life Sunday, I don't. I don't preach the lectionary on that day. I preach what's appointed for sanctity of life. And there might be an emergency, a national emergency or something that needs to be addressed. We'll talk about that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I would change for something like that. But almost no other ex 
No other thing will move me off of the lectionary. And the simple reason for that is I don't have the time. I don't have, see, decisions take time and I don't have it. So I have to figure out how I'm going to make time or use the time that I have. So, and you're going to hear this theme a lot in how I do sermon prep. Decision-making takes time that I don't have. So minimizing decision-making is an essential part of my sermon preparation. So let me give you an example. I have covenanted, covenanted, that's such a strong word, especially now that we're Christians, you know, we have that, we have an understanding of what covenant means. It's not that, but I've committed in some sense to my uh, parish that I will preach the hardest text appointed uh, because they don't need my help with the easier text. Now, sometimes you get two hard texts and then you don't know what to do. And, but that immediately, so when I'm reading on Monday, I'm like, what's the hardest text? And then I don't even have to make the decision about what I'm going to preach on. I know by the end of my morning lessons. Uh, I'm going to change it up a little bit this next year. I'm going to be preaching the old 1662 lectionary, and I've committed to preaching the Sunday lessons of the 1662 Old Testament to preach Christ in the Old Testament for the next two years. So that'll automatically make that decision too, and I don't have to worry about that. Again, time is essential. I don't have very much. I don't even have really time to prayerfully consider what I'm going to pray. I and of course, it doesn't always apply. Sometimes, though I've had some exceptions, there's be one of the four texts that sticks out to me that doesn't meet any of those requirements. And I remember somebody asking me what I was preaching on one Wednesday for the following Sunday, and I told him, and by Friday it was different. Because it was one passage that just kept re on repeat through my head, and I just, like, I have to say, the Spirit of God is working through my circumstances. And I'll talk about that in just a little bit more. So, I, I usually start by... Uh, reading all the passages one time, and then I read that one passage that I'm deciding I'm going to preach on a bunch of time, and then I start asking the questions about context, because I do want to preach ex, uh, expository sermons as much as I can. Are we new to the book? Do I have any back? Did I Do I need to give background here? Did I already give background when we were in the book last week? Were we in the book last week? What did I preach on last week? Do I need to build on that? I also start to ponder the needs of my parishioners. We heard earlier today the importance of knowing your parishioners and how they will hear you differently. I think uh, when, I, when I was introduced to Anglicanism, I, was, I became a, uh, an Anglican at Bishop Stuart Rook's church. He wasn't a bishop then, at the Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. And I learned, I basically, I, I listened to him. I don't think he would ever be a radio preacher. But I think he's pastorally sensitive enough to his flock that they, if, if, if he preached a sermon that's a six on a scale of one to ten, his parishioners adhere an eight. So he's got a lot of, we heard some of that earlier today, how that, that happens. And so I, I have a good number in my parish that are new to liturgical life in general. And we're quite, uh, so we have a strong emphasis in our church that you ought to know what you're doing. If you don't know why we're doing this in the liturgy, you need to ask. So usually, if there's something odd going on in the, in the in liturgically speaking, like if it's the first Sunday of Advent, I'm going to talk about Advent. If it's the first Sunday of Lent, I'm going to talk about Lent. What are those things? If you can't answer those questions uh, before church, hopefully you will answer them afterwards. So the first five to ten minutes of many of my sermons are spent explaining interesting liturgical things that just happened. I had a visitor this past Sunday who thanked me for... Um, explaining what All Saints was, because she'd never heard that before, and she come, came from a Protestant background, and she was exploring Anglicanism. Never heard of All Saints Day, and was thankful that I spent 10 minutes on it and had a sermon on it. So she was 
You know, there's a lot of people in our congregation that are like that. And there might be a certain issue that so-and-so has or brought up or maybe more than once that I need to address. And so those things really all factor into it, hopefully before the weekend. So then at work, like my day job, I at will hopefully still have these things in my head. And while I'm doing my day job, if things come to mind, I jot them down. Ideally, it starts going down by Wednesday. And I'll also start thinking about bulletins because I need to plan hymnody as well by the weekend. So I'll start jotting them down. If I get some downtime, I may even expand some of those thoughts on to get beyond that a little bit. Um, and I've noticed that God may speak to me about the text, and you know that might be through my circumstances at work. A lot of things that happen to me at work often end up on a Sunday sermon. It's uh, so it's amazing how God does that because he knows that I have to do sermon prep even when I'm not doing sermon prep. I also start looking at my sources and I don't really have time to go looking. So I have a list of sources that I go to and I don't have, I have to rely on other people's homework to do it. Like I have, I look at sermons, I look at commentaries. Like if I'm going to look at sermons, we heard about John Piper earlier today. I think John Piper does pretty good exegesis 90 plus percent of the time. So I don't have time to do exegesis. So I'm going to see what he has to say. If I have some questions, I'll go look at somebody else that I also know does good exegesis. So, but, you know, I have my list of people and I have other categories like who does good typology in sermons? Who does good sermon points? Okay, what are they saying? What are their points? Does this tie into a liturgy well? Who has those? And I have a list that I go and I jump around and I go look at all of them. And it goes without saying that you should know the background of those writers because you know, John Piper's a Reformed Baptist, and there's a lot of stuff that he uses that I... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, though, that's very Reformed Baptist <laughs> and doesn't work in an Anglican context. So it's good if you know those things. By Friday, i got to preach in two days now. I have all the points in my head, hopefully, but where I'm going in about 25% of my outline done, hopefully, uh, just through a very rough draft of what I've written down thus far. I don't have a full manuscript. I never do. Uh, I don't have the time. And I don't get usually another crack until Saturday night. My kids need some attention. My wife needs some attention by Friday. And I need my wife probably needs to get out of the house because <laughs> we have five kids, 10 and under. So that's, and but yet God is faithful. I don't, I, at 8.30 Saturday night, the kids are down or headed there. I work till 10.30. So I only have about two hours then. I might need to work an hour on Sunday morning. I don't know. I don't proofread the text. I don't practice. I don't have any of that time. I just go. And it's amazing, though, that God works and blesses that so often. I have learned that I am a terrible predictor of how God is going to use my sermon. Like there was one time I remember specifically that I felt the preparation was lousy and never got any idea where I really wanted to go. And I apologized during announcements how the sermon went that day. And I had a, at least one parishioner was like, oh, that was exactly what I needed to hear today. And he gave me a list of things on how God moved. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just, it just, it just happens. And then I'm sure there are other things where I think I totally hit a home run. I'm sure that are forgotten by people, time people are done drinking coffee after church. So, you know, you just don't know how God's going to work. And then Sunday afternoon, I collapse, I take a nap and I go do it again. <laughs> the next it's a living for sure. And so, I mean, that's, that's just life in exile. I have other things I have to do, like pastoral care, pay attention to my 
uh, congregants. I try to go out with a lunch with some of the men in my parish. I actually have one of the most peculiar churches in the USA, I think, that's mostly men. Um, I have the largest contingency in my church, although it's changing now a little bit. But for a while, it was I, I had a large relative to like 25, you know, I have 25 people, but I had four or five single men on my church on a Sunday. So it's kind of odd. Um, but, you know, I had to figure, I, I figured out this is what ministry looks like for somebody in my situation. And I think it's going to become more normal. And hopefully this is going to be useful. I know we don't have too many here, but I mean, I got a recording now. You maybe could share it with somebody you know who's in exile or somebody that's, you know, I, you might be thinking, oh, John really needs to hear this or something like this. I have met resistance to this idea. I have met people who do not know what to do with what I'm saying here, but they really haven't thought through the consequences of that. I would argue you haven't thought through the consequences of what's going on in our society around. If in the next 20 years, your church or your denomination or your seminary loses nonprofit status, what's going to happen? And if they lose nonprofit status, the clergy housing allowance is also going to be likely gone too. Because the if we once we lose nonprofit status, it'd be a lot easier to take that away from us. And so, how many churches are going to have to close? And how many how many is going to, how many churches are going to have to stop paying staff? I'd say a lot. And I'm not even going to go into all the other charities that would be affected. And if you're like me and you believe in ontological ordination that once you're a priest, you're always a priest from then on, and you're on the hook for Judgment Day to be a priest, you better figure out what that's going to look like, what your ministry is going to look like. I've had an interesting conversation with two priests. I call this my tale of two priests. I, it, they both gave me somewhat of rebukes, but totally different kinds of rebukes. One came, visited our church, and basically I, one of the things I mentioned in my sermon was that our sermon, I record all our sermons, but I password protect them because I cannot have my HR department at work finding out what I preached on. And it's social media is so bad right now. You can say something you said is in high school, say 20 years ago or whatever, that was off color and say you had a Facebook account then can be used against you in your 30s at a job interview. There's no forgiveness there. And it's awful. And I mean, I heard stories about this at lunch today, oh, we found this article that you wrote 15, 20 years ago, and that's why we're not going to consider you for this job. I mean, that's real life. So, I mean, I have to preserve my own, uh, my own livelihood, but I know I have clergy, clergy in my own diocese whose social media accounts could ensure they will never, ever work in social media. I mean, not social media. Their social media will make sure they never work in corporate America, ever. There's no way. And it's so bad right now that the stuff you say today that might be perfectly fine today might not be perfectly fine in 10 years, and it will be held against you. So I, that, these, these priests, one, rebuked me and said, if you can't be a priest at work, you need to find a different job because that's who you are. You can't be password protecting your sermons. I mean, and it, I, you know, basically a lecture about the importance of getting the gospel out there. But I thought about that later. I'm like, if he went to China, would he think like this? If he went to the Middle East, where it was a matter of life and death, would he think like this? I don't think so. I, I, I just think he was naive. When talking to him, he didn't, he didn't have any background in corporate America at all. He'd been a minister in full-time ministry for like 20, no, probably 30 or 40 years. He was, he was an older fellow. And so 
But then I had another man who also worked in IT. And his rebuke was a little different. He said, what are you thinking having priests in your LinkedIn profile? Like, you can't have that. You need to have like a Father Timothy LinkedIn profile, and you need to have a Timothy profile, and there the two shall meet. You have to keep those things separate because that culture, you do not want the tech culture into your priest life. You do not. And he gets it. He gets it. He really does. And that's that's the situation we're we're in. And it it it's it's coming one has come to terms with the fact that he lives in exile too. And one thinks we still live in Jerusalem and is going to have, I think, some harsh realities coming his way, perhaps. And one of the things that I've also been blessed with, and this is this is really good, is my parish gets it. And my parish knows that I'm in exile. I get so much grace from my my parish. Their expectations are of a pastor who has five kids and a day job. So if your people don't understand that you're in exile, you're going to run into some difficulties. I had, I had a man check out our church. He, he never actually visited. He asked a lot of questions online, though. But, I, but one of the things that I do when somebody inquires about the church is I ask, so why, why are you interested in our church? And he said, I don't think my pastor spends enough time in the study. And a Dutch Reformed tradition, they probably got preached to two times, three times a week. And I'm thinking, well, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> you, you know, this is not the church for you. Because I, I spend less. I don't even know how much time he spends in the study, but I bet you I spend less. And the, buried beneath that is a kind of American consumerism, I think. And American consumerism does not work in my context. I had another guy. This is also a different kind of consumerism. A small church. Um, obviously, I have a few people. One of the things he brought up to me is that he didn't, he didn't like the fact that in our church he could not be anonymous. Wow. I mean, that's a kind of, that is a kind of consumerism, I think. And, but that, that doesn't work in exile. You know, you have to have small hidden networks when you're finally in network, when Christianity has to go underground. That's the only way it's going to work. And you, there's no such thing as an anonymous and an anonymity when you're in those kind of situations. So, uh, you know, it was a, It'll be a heart wake-up call for him too. I'm afraid he. There, there's no. I don't think it's God's design for us to be anonymous in churches. But my the people who do stay in my church and have stayed, they're there to serve, and so that is, and that that they're not to be served. They're there to serve, and I've learned to just accept that. And when the people who can't stay, they just they just need to go. That's probably a happier place for them. So, one of the things also I've learned, and I just kind of want to end with this, and we'll I'll, then I'll take. We can we can interact a little bit and I'll stop recording. There's a the, the reality that preaching is spiritual warfare. It is. So I get attacked when I'm preparing for 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 sermons, and the all preachers need to figure out where are they going to be attacked most. I had I have a policy in my house now because Saturday nights were so bad in my house that we get ready for church at five o'clock on Saturday. For 9.30 church on Sunday, we get ready at 5 o'clock on Saturday. That means showers. That means we've, I mean, and it needs to get better because not everybody, I've learned in recent weeks, we don't, not every child knows where their Bible is. Not every child knows where their church shoes are at 9, you know, or at 9 o'clock on Sunday. So we need to figure out how we're going to make that even better. So, but that's a major source of attack and attitudes and uh, flare-ups. And it's not just the children. I'm not, I'm not always any better. 
and that that will inhibit my ability to do sermon prep. Um, other things that inter- interfere is like do our decision shoot coming up that I don't really need to decide right now, and I, other distractions certainly help uh, come against me. Satan gets me hardest when I'm tired, and I'm tired. You can imagine with some frequency. I, and it, honestly, in the last year or two, one of the biggest coping mechanisms I cup, came up with is pretty much the obvious one. I sleep whenever I can. If I can take a nap, I'm going to take a nap. If I can go to bed early, I'm going to go to bed early. If I can sleep in, I'm going to sleep in. And it's amazing. I probably It probably means I pray less than I used to. But I'm more coherent. So, And I think when I'm more coherent, I'm less susceptible to the temptations of the enemy. I've... I, I'm not 100% convinced that's the best answer, but it means that I can fight another day. And when you're in a bivocational ministry, you got to figure out how you're going to be functional and how your marriage is still going to be functional at the end of next week, next month, and next year. So that's it. I'm going to end recording and take your questions.